Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's episode, we're talking about one of those weird worst case scenario outcomes that your nursing instructors warned you about. Air embolism from incorrect central line removal technique. Joining me today to talk about this crazy case is my colleague, Marissa. Marissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the story, I wanted to take a minute to introduce you to my listeners. Y'all, Marissa is truly one of the best nurses that I know. She's super smart and equally compassionate. Her personality takes up a lot of space in the room, but so does her heart. When I started the rapid response team at our hospital, she was the first person I recruited because she's just the ideal rapid response nurse. She genuinely cares about every patient. She will fight to the death to get patients what they need. She loves to teach and support nurses, and she knows her stuff. I love, love, love saving lives with Marissa. Marissa, do you remember how we met? I'm pretty sure it was when our neuro ICU was starting up, and you brought me in to make this video. <laughs> well, it goes back a little, a little before that. So I didn't know you at all. It was like maybe five years ago. I was the ER educator. You were the ICU charge nurse. And somehow we ended up at this meeting about implementing the 23.4% hypertonic saline administration. And you were talking about how important it is that we properly educate the nurses before we roll out this new intervention. And uh, you were just super passionate about advocating for that and advocating for the patients and for your team. And I was like, who is that girl? She is my people. I ended up convincing you to make that educational video uh, that we should a shift huddle for like two weeks straight about hypertonic saline. I think it's actually still on YouTube if anyone wanted to look it up. Oh, I'm Lord. sure Marissa would love everyone to see it since she filmed it at 8 a.m. after her third night shift in a row. Um, but needless to say, we've been friends ever since. So Marissa, tell my listeners how long you've been a nurse, uh, what types of nursing roles you've held, and what drew you to the rapid response role in the first place. Okay, so I began my nursing career about nine years ago as a med surge nurse in hematology oncology. I grew within that department. I had great people instill knowledge into me about chemotherapy, about blood transfusions, about the blood components of each individual patient. And as I grew and learned more, another thing that began to catch my attention was patients that began to decompensate and needed aggressive intervention. That desire to continue to learn and continue to grow as a nurse kind of drove me to the intensive care unit. So after about a year doing med surge, I moved to ICU. And there was just a plethora of knowledge that was there to be learned, a plethora of experienced nurses that just wanted to pour information into me as a new grad coming in. So I just got to be a sponge and soak all that up. As I continued to grow in that career, I was asked to be a charge nurse in the ICU and one of our responsibilities was to work as rapid response. So I would go to all of our code blues on the floors, all of our rapids, and would intervene for the patient and then rush back to the ICU to help take care of my patients and my team there. Another aspect of the role 
that I grew to love and cherish the most about my job was being able to advocate for patients in the emergency department as well. As an ICU charge nurse, I was in a lot of ways the gatekeeper to getting an ICU bed. One of the ways that I helped facilitate that was I would go and look at the patients in the ER. I would talk to the staff. I would ask them how I could help them, how I could support their team in order to move the patient to a higher level of care as soon as we possibly could. Because at the end of the day, that's the part that matters. Despite differences in opinion, despite a lot of arguments that go between the ER and the ICU, at the end of the day, the only part that matters is the patient. So one of my big pushes as a charge nurse there was to try to rebuild that relationship between our ER and our ICU and to try to help bring the two departments together to better advocate for our patients. And honestly, Marissa, I would say that you effectively pulled that off. Like you really did bridge the gap, tear down the silos, whatever you want to say, between the ER and the ICU. And I feel like today we have a much better working relationship because of some of the groundwork that you laid working night shift in the trenches between ER and ICU. So thank you for doing that. So you did ICU for a while. You got hospital nurse of the year. (laughs) And then what made you want to go cardiac ICU after that? So like you said, I'd been in ICU for a long time, um, but I felt like there was a piece of my nursing career that could still expand within the facility. So I had not had any experience with cardiovascular ICU, um, balloon pumps, impellas, or open heart surgery. So I went ahead and transitioned into our cardiac ICU where I could get the opportunity to learn that patient population, something that I had not had any interaction with before, cardiogenic shock, things like that. And eventually I got the opportunity to join our ECMO program as well. So I got I got the opportunity to be involved in nearly every aspect of nursing and advanced care within our hospital. ER, medical ICU, neuro ICU, cardiac ICU, ECMO nurse, and then Sarah comes knocking at your door. Come back and do rapid response, Marissa. <laughs> you know that was your favorite part. And genuinely it was. So the it was it was a difficult decision because I was comfortable in cardiac ICU. I was had had my my patient population down. I was comfortable, but sometimes you gotta get a little bit uncomfortable and go back to something that you love. So transition back to rapid response with Sarah full time, and and you've been rocking it ever since. Couldn't do anything else now. <laughs> Absolutely. So now let's talk about this interesting case. So I wasn't working that day. I think you were by yourself. Yep. Um, you get the rapid response page. You arrive at the patient's room. How did they initially present? Like, what did the nurse say they called a rapid response for? What were your initial thoughts? So I walk in the room. The staff had originally called the rapid response for altered mental status. The patient had been conversant, talking about an hour prior. The staff had gone in the room to check on the patient, and she had pulled her trialysis catheter out of her right IJ. She pulled it herself. She took it out herself. Okay. So the patient had originally been admitted to the hospital for altered mental status, lethargy, and hyperkalemia. So she had had a few days of dialysis, had improved, mental status had gotten better. She was talking, conversing, back to A&O times four. And then about an hour prior to this, the staff had seen her. And then at the time of the rapid response call, she was unresponsive, would not respond to a sternal rub, was very much different from her baseline. 
Um, so I'm sitting there talking to the staff. They're sharing this history about her. And I start looking at the patient. They checked a blood sugar. It was a, within normal limits. Her vital signs were hemodynamically stable. She was oxygenating well, satting 98% on room air. But she just wouldn't wake up. So I'm looking at her face, and I see some facial droop on the left-hand side. So I'm looking at her, and staff's like, that's new. The provider's in the room. She's like, we should call a stroke alert. I'll order a CAT scan. So we call a stroke alert as I pack the patient up and roll them down to CT scan. We get down to CT. The stroke team meets us downstairs. I share patient presentation and what's new. We get our non-con CT scan, and our neurologist at the time pulls it up on his phone and says, oh, wow. I've never seen that before. How did that get there? <laughs> okay, so let's review. Because we get these kind of calls all the time. Hey, rapid response nurse, this is my patient. They're not how they usually are. So always my first thought is like, oh, their blood pressure must be low. But blood pressure is fine. Yep, 140s oh. over 70s. Oh, their blood sugar must be low. 148. But their blood sugar is fine. Yep. Oh, their CO2 must be really high. <laughs> but that didn't we seem, tell. Not from her history. Okay. But then you notice the facial droops. Now you're like, oh, stroke. Okay, which usually comes from a blood clot to the brain or bleeding to the brain. But you're in CAT scan. And what did y'all see in the brain? There was air. What? <laughs> Throughout the entire right side of the patient's brain. What does air on the CAT scan look like? It's black. Think about your chest x-ray. You want a clear chest x-ray to be nice and dark compared to the structures around the lungs. So it's that nice dark black color, which does definitely not belong in the brain. <laughs> okay, that is so crazy. And then how did you like put the pieces together to the fact that like, oh yeah, the patient pulled her own trialysis catheter out. That's so, how air got in. I mean, it's that terror of nursing school, right? And all that PTSD we all have as nurses of teachers drilling into you. You have to turn down and break the patient. You have to have them hold your breath over and over again. So this patient had been sitting up in the bed over 30 degrees when she had removed her central line. Staff had gone into the room, had occluded the insertion site and had stopped the bleeding that had been occurring for an extended period of time. However, no one had any idea how long she had been in that condition. Taking nice, good, normal, deep breaths, increasing that intrathoracic <laughs> pressure and pulling air up into her system. Wow, that is crazy. So I've been a nurse for about 18 years and I have taught many nursing students the importance of having the patient hold their breath and properly cooling the insertion site. And I've never actually had any patient have complications from a central line removal. And honestly, I too felt like it was one of those kind of things that nursing professors would use to scare you with. Like, don't push the Lasix too fast and your patient's going to go deaf. Or you got to get all the air bubbles out of the IV tubing or your patient will die of an air embolus. I mean, I listen. Like, I push the Lasix nice and slow and I get all the air bubbles out and I use proper technique when pulling central lines. But I always kind of wondered that they were, like, exaggerating the risk. And uh, I guess not. <laughs> So uh, what is the treatment for a patient that this were to happen to? Like, what did you guys do? So for us specifically, we don't have a hyperbaric chamber. So our only option was hyperoxygenation with 100% of IO2. Despite the 100% SAT, the goal was to place a non-rebreather on the patient and hope to dispel the oxygen in the tissue with the high oxygen content to help 
make it evaporate basically in the brain tissue. So the other thing the neurosurgeon recommended was placing a patient in Trendelenburg okay. to attempt to force the air into the toes of the patient because that's the least toxic location for it. Thankfully, the air remained in the venous system, but the risk is always there that the air could move to the arterial system and the patient could have a air embolus and, and, and a arrest on my med search floor as I'm sitting out there waiting for an ICU bed. That is crazy. Well, Marissa, thank you so much. Um, I wouldn't say I learned something new with regards to like the risk associated with central because I did know there was a risk, but I, I was reminded how important it is that we pay close attention to our technique when pulling out central lines. And I did learn what to do if it were to happen. Your patient pulls their central line out, oh shoot, flip them on their head and put their feet up in the air just in case they get an air bliss. So, um, Marissa, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I have dragged you into so many presentations <laughs> and committees and videos and PR events, and you are always such a good sport. Thank you for representing our team well and just the profession of nursing as a whole. It is truly a privilege to work alongside you. Even through all of that, at least we always have a good time, Sarah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the kind of crazy stuff you get called to as a rapid response nurse. It definitely makes me all the more hypervigilant with regards to keeping patients safe. I'm usually not an advocate for restraints, but restraints might have kept this patient from seriously harming herself. You know, hindsight's 2020, right? And I will surely be telling this story every time I walk a nursing student through DCing a central line. So I've done a little research on the topic and will attempt to summarize it for you. But if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of pathophysiology of air embolisms to the brain, there are a lot of great articles on Medscape. But the simplest one I found for this particular complication is by the American Heart Association called Accidental Air Embolism. The authors, like my podcast, start out with a case study and then break down the pathophysiology of what happened to the patient. So here's the thing. Air can get lodged anywhere in the circulatory system, but the type and severity of symptoms completely depends on where the air bubbles end up. Additionally, air in the arterial system is way more problematic and life-threatening than air in the venous system, though both can lead to loss of life. But how does air get in the bloodstream anyways? Well, air can enter when inserting vascular lines, during surgery, from trauma, for massive changes in atmospheric pressure, like when scuba divers are developed the bends, also called decompression sickness, or like in this patient's case, when removing vascular lines. Air that gets stuck in the vasculature of the lungs produces respiratory symptoms like chest pain and shortness of breath. Air stuck in the coronaries produces symptoms of a heart attack or arrhythmias. And air in the brain produces stroke-like symptoms. Other solid embolisms like blood clots or plaque tend to travel with the flow of blood. That's why a DVT in the leg can break off and travel north, make its way through the right atrium, the right ventricle, and then get shot into the lungs where it gets lodged in the more narrow vessels of the lungs. We call this a pulmonary embolism. The clot creates an obstruction that keeps blood uh, moving from moving through the lungs, inhibiting the function of the lungs, and hence impairing gas exchange. Another example of blood clots moving with the flow of blood is when blood clots develop in the left atrial appendage in patients with atrial fibrillation. 
That's why AFib is such a huge risk factor for stroke because if one of those clots breaks off and travels to the left ventricle, its next stop is the brain because the clot will follow the flow of blood, which happens to head north out of the left side of the heart. Air embolisms, however, do not necessarily flow with the predicted pattern of blood flow because gas bubbles have a lower specific gravity and therefore tend to just float up, whichever way up is. Hence the practice of placing patients flat or slightly Trendelenburg when pulling central lines. So if air does enter the bloodstream, it head towards the toes instead of the brain. Another thing to consider regarding the level of risk associated with air embolisms is whether you have a venous or arterial embolism. For people with normal forward flow, most small air embolisms, like the tiny little bubbles you get in the IV tubing, when they enter the venous side, they'll be dispelled in the capillaries of the periphery or of the lungs. The problem lies when the air bubble reaches the arterial circulation before it reaches the lungs. About 25% of the population has a PFO or patent foramen ovale or oval. <laughs> That's the little opening between the left and right atrium that usually closes once the baby is born. People with a small PFO are usually asymptomatic, but if an air embolus were to enter the right side of the heart on an individual with a patent foramen ovale, the embolus could easily make its way to the left side of the heart and could cause a myocardial infarction or cerebral embolism. Arterial air embolisms are often fatal, and that's why we take extra care to get all the air out of arterial line tubing. And it even has extra air filters within itself. So how much air does it actually take to cause a problem? Well, yeah, and it depends on if we're talking air in the artery or air in the vein. A lethal amount of air in the venous system is three to five milliliters per kilogram. So for a 75 kilo patient, that's around 225 mLs. That's for lethal. But complications have been reported with air boluses as small as 20 mLs. For reference, a medicine cup is 30 mLs, and your standard IV tubing comes with about 20 mLs of air in it prior to priming. But don't let your guard down with those venous air bubbles, because remember I said that about 25% of the patient population has a PFO? which means that air can pass between the right and left heart and quickly go from a venous air bubble to an arterial air bubble. A lethal amount of air in the arterial system is two to three mLs of air into the cerebral circulation and as little as 0.5 mLs that gets into the left anterior descending coronary artery can cause ventricular fibrillation. So it makes sense why most nursing schools have an entire lab dedicated to priming IV tubing. So say you walk in and find your patient has accidentally or purposefully pulled their own central line out. It's time to jump into action. Grab whatever you can and hold pressure at the site. Flip the patient into Trendelenburg or even better, left line Trendelenburg and call for help. Maybe you caught it just in time and the patient won't suffer any complications. But say they start having symptoms of an air embolism. Maybe an air implicits, including flow to the heart muscle, and the patient gets chest pain or shortness of breath, or they start to have change in mental status or stroke-like symptoms. Put the patient on a non-rebreather mask and activate your rapid response team. So what can you do in the meantime while you're waiting for them to arrive? And really, this goes for any emergency. 
obviously think ABCs, right? Is the airway patent? Do I need to help them with their breathing? How is their circulation? Do I need to help support circulation? And once you've established that there's no imminent life threats, then start by grabbing a fresh set of vital signs. Bring the crash cart nearby. And if you think the patient needs to go somewhere, be it CAT scan or the ICU or the operating room or cath lab, start prepping your patient for travel. Clear a path for the door. Disconnect all the things that won't be coming on the journey with them, like the call bell or the phone or the tube beatings. Grab one of those poles that attaches to the bed so that you can move the IV pump over to it. Get a portable oxygen tank if they're on oxygen. Think about what you can do or delegate to expedite getting the patient out of the room and heading where they need to be. Once the rapid response team arrives, just be ready to give a quick summary of what led up to the event and then be available to help stabilize the patient or get them where they need to be going. You don't have to have everything fixed or even figured out by the time the rapid response team arrives. It's a team effort to put all the pieces together, to figure out what's going on with the patient, and it takes a team to fix it too. For an air ambulance into the brain, their mortality rate is pretty high, but you can try and dispel the air by placing the patient on high flow, high FiO2, like a non-rebreather mask. Using high flow, 100% oxygen will help push out the nitrogen in the bubbles and therefore reduce the size of the air bubbles. And flipping the patient on their left side and on their head sends the air bubbles somewhere safer. Remember the air will travel up. So if up is the toes or the right side of the heart, this will encourage the air to move out of the brain and any air that is trapped in the heart will stay on the right side of the heart and hopefully prevent it from making its way to the left side of the heart where it's more dangerous. So quick bullet point summary. Air embolisms to the brain or heart or lungs are a real thing that can happen from placing or removing central lines or allowing air to enter the venous system through any IV access point. Next, the body can usually handle small amounts of air on the venous side, but it can tolerate very little air once it makes it to the arterial side. And finally, if you suspect an air embolism, drop that patient into left-flying Trendelenburg position, place them on a non-rebreather mask, and call for backup. As I wrap up this podcast, I just want to say a few things that I feel like I say all the time, but it's important. I wanted to point out that even Marissa, who was an excellent clinician and critical thinker, didn't know at first what was causing this patient's decline. Nobody did. It took some further assessment and diagnostic imaging to figure out what was going on with this patient. So don't wait until you know what's wrong to call a rapid response. Second, I'm sure you could hear from Marissa's introduction how passionate she is about providing the best care to her patients and advocating for them to get what they need. No matter if you're a rapid response nurse or a med surge nurse or a labor and delivery nurse or an ICU nurse, when your patient steps foot in the hospital, they are putting their life in your hands. They trust that your training and experience will guide you in providing them safe, compassionate care. Every patient, even the difficult ones that pull out their own central lines, deserve an advocate that cares for their well-being. So hold that responsibility close to your heart, because what you do matters. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.